Welcome to Clinically Thinking. I'm Dr. Lisa Chandler. I'm with our co-presenter, Matt Cartwright, to talk about today's show. Hey, Matt, how's things going? Pretty good, Lisa. It feels like a busy time of year as we lead into the APS Clinical Conference in Brisbane next month. Very exciting times. It's uh, incredibly good to be thinking about actually getting on an aeroplane and attending face-to-face training with colleagues. It's been too long. What about you? What are you looking forward to? Absolutely. I think just being able to have conversations rather than on a screen will be terrific. And uh, all of those networking opportunities and and new collaborations will be sensational. It will be so good to hear from our keynote speakers. And we've had the uh, the fortune to make make a podcast with several of them, and including Professor McWilliams, whose book I understand you've been reading. Is that right? Yeah, um, Nancy's uh, one of Nancy's several books, in fact, um, of uh, psychodynamic or psychoanalytic diagnosis. Uh, it has been a fascinating read, exploring the real structure of personality uh, from a psychodynamic perspective and the way in which um, various clinical presentations tend to originate from the early life relational experiences that, that people are exposed to. So it's been an absolute hoot to read and uh, I'm fortunate enough as a part of the APS Clinical Conference to be able to interview her today. Sounds fantastic. Can you tell us just a little bit more about Nancy's background? Yeah, so Nancy is uh, has an incredibly decorated career. She teaches at uh, Rutgers University Graduate School um, of Applied and Professional Psychology, and she also practices uh, in Lambertville, New Jersey. So she's based in the United States. Um, she's authored, as I said, multiple books, uh, Psycho Psychoanalytic Diagnosis, originally in 1994, and and then came out with a revised edition in 2011, and has written comprehensively on psychoanalytic case formulation, psychotherapy, and also mm. supervision. Um, so a very experienced and uh, and, and incredibly um, uh, interesting uh, take, looking at it from a psychodynamic perspective. Uh, it sounds like she's had a fantastic career. And yeah. uh, you and I both know that at Clinically Thinking, we very much enjoy having access uh, to these wonderful gurus and the generosity and spending time with us is um, you know, fantastic. So uh, I'm very much looking forward to hearing this podcast. So over to you. Thank you. Nancy, it's a pleasure and a privilege to speak with you. Thank you. For me too. <laughs> Firstly, with an extraordinary career that has spanned decades, where did your journey begin as a therapist? <laughs> Probably when I was a little girl, I had a very psychologically oriented mother. Um, I've always been interested in people and individual differences. And I was one of those kids who knew I wanted to, to do something with people. I was a camp counselor. I thought I might want to be a teacher. Um, I didn't discover uh psychology or psychoanalysis until well into college. I was a political science major because that was a major that you could take a certain minimum number of courses and um, have a a wide range of elective courses in other fields. And I wanted a really broad education. Mm -hmm. Uh, The psych department made you take countless courses and most of them involved running rats. And so I, I, was, I thought they were talking more about people in political science at the time. It was the 60s. It was a political time. But I got into um, psychoanalysis because my um, faculty advisor suggested that uh, for my honors thesis in political theory, I read Freud's Civilization and Its Discontents and talk about Sigmund Freud's uh, political theory. And I just got fascinated by it. I started reading um, books by people that were then quite popular that were psychoanalytic by authors like Eric Erickson, Karen Horney, Theodore Reich, um, Herbert Marcuse, uh, Rollo May. Uh, there were a lot of books that were quite popular. That would, Eric Fromm would be another example. Um, and 
I, I just got fascinated. And after I graduated from undergraduate college, I had married the professor who encouraged me to read that book. And back in the 60s, that was not considered uh, a patriarchal abuse of power. Um, and I wanted to get out of his field. Uh, and we had moved to New York and I realized that Theodore Reich was still alive and he was a protege of Freud's. And I asked him if I could meet him and talk to him. So he told me if I wanted to go into the field, I should get analyzed. And um, I was lucky enough to, you know, I went to the institute that he had founded. He was the first psychologist analyst. He was the person for whom Freud wrote that article about how the best preparation to be a, a psychoanalyst is not a, a medical preparation. It's a broad education in the humanities and psychology. Um, so he had founded an institute that was uh, unusual in New York City because New York analysts were mostly trying to limit the profession to MDs. Uh, so uh, I went to the clinic at that institute and they assigned me an analyst and it turned out to be a very, very good match. Uh, it made me very sensitive for the rest of my life to how much the relationship matters, much more than the technique, the orientation, uh, even what you talk about sometimes. Uh, so that experience, which I had entered into for what I thought was a professional reason that anybody who goes into this field should go through uh, psychoanalysis. And I thought originally, I'll find out what the old guys did, and now I'll, then I'll find out what's really helpful. But my own rather classical analysis um, was very transformative to my life. I don't think my marriage would have lasted without it. I don't think I would have had children without it. Um, yeah, it's extraordinary how that broader conceptualization of the human experience by studying in the humanities and the, the political discourse at the time really informed your worldview and subsequent introduction to psychoanalysis. It raises the question then, did you find psychoanalysis or did psychoanalysis find you? That's hard to tell. When I first read psychoanalytic writing, I thought, oh, this, this is what I want to do. I felt like I had come home somehow. I felt like I'd fallen in love with a way of seeing the world. And I never framed it as like antagonistic to other approaches, really. I, I, and it wasn't taught that way in my psychoanalytic training either. Um, it, it wasn't highly ideological. It wasn't like you have to do this, you never do that. It was like, oh, there's all this knowledge that's coming to us through these intensive studies of people that is applicable in so many different situations. Yes. Speaking of ideology, despite psychoanalysis dominating the first half of the 20th century, following the advent of Rogerian humanism and cognitive behavioural therapy that really tailored itself to industrial America, psychoanalysis reduced in popularity significantly. And indeed, today in Australia, CBT dominates the teaching of postgraduate programs and you know, forms a major component of government and privately funded psychological therapy. What are your thoughts on that shift? And do you believe there's an, a renaissance of psychoanalytic therapy or um, any type of analytical components to modern day therapy? Um, it's a complicated question. Uh, I think we, in, in cultures like America and Australia, for that matter, we love the new. We don't have a culture that puts a lot of emphasis on the wisdom of the elders. We, we want the new gimmick, the new metaphor, the new way of thinking. And, uh, you know, I, I love Roger's work, and I have loved a lot of... Um, the insights of cognitive behavioral colleagues too. Sometimes it strikes me that it's a different language more than, you know, a whole different worldview. And 
as CBT has matured over the years and um, embraced all kinds of elements. I mean, it originally was just a very narrow behaviorism and then it added cognition. And now you have the CBT triangle and affect is understood to be very important. Uh, in many ways, it, it's, it's reinventing concepts that have been in the psychoanalytic literature for a long time. And I feel mixed about that. I, I partly think, um, well, uh, good on them. I mean, that's, that's the language we'll probably be going forward with. But another part of me is irritated. Like, why did you have to, t- why did you have to attack us and claim that we were, you know, somehow archaic and then reinvent a similar concept and claim that it's a radically new idea. So I, I kind of feel both ways where I do think, um, it gets confusing is a lot of what's happened to psychotherapy is not really, I think, about theoretical orientation. It's really about pressures from drug companies, insurance companies, government cost cutters, a certain kind of academic who really does not understand psychotherapy of any kind. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're getting pressed by bureaucrats to, to do the possible or they want to believe you can you can do more with less or that they're redefining therapy as meaning you apply a technical approach to a DSM symptom complex and I think even my cognitive behavioral colleagues who've been practicing for any length of time are very oppressed by that they they know they have to work with people longer than 20 sessions they know that you know somebody, with uh, really severe OCD, who frankly believes that his life is going to fall apart if he doesn't practice his rituals and treats the therapist as if he's dangerous if the therapist is trying to um, change him. That's a very different kind of patient from the patient who comes in saying, I've got a little OCD. It started at this point. I, I, I need some ways of stopping myself from doing this. I mean, people are, are on a dimension and mm. researchers usually study the people at the healthy end of the dimension because they're easier to work with. They tend to have one problem, not comorbid with other things, which is not true in clinical practice. And they do these lovely studies of, of focused techniques for, you know, uh, artificially separate problems and that mm. just doesn't match therapy in the real world so that's a that's a problem that we're struggling with as therapists irrespective of our orientation uh, the one place where i find that there may be a resurgence of psychoanalysis is that um, nobody has invented a really short treatment for the severe personality disorders and that's the topic of my keynote in Australia. Uh, you you need to have a complex theory for that. Now in in um, CBT we have DBT, we have schema therapy, and we have some other ways of understanding uh, personality. But they're all rather complicated. They're not simple, uh, mm-hmm. and yet they can't be easily manualized. Mm. I was speaking with colleagues about psychoanalysis a week back, and they reflected to me an all-too-common, arguably cliché appraisal of psychoanalysis as lacking the empirical process that other modalities have seemingly navigated to legitimise themselves as gold-standard, evidence-based psychological therapies. What would you say to those inside and outside of our profession who are critical, even suspicious, of the efficacy of psychoanalysis in modern-day clinical psychology practice? Well, first of all, I think analysts have to take some responsibility for that state of affairs because there were a bunch of very arrogant analysts that felt that we didn't have to do research on our concepts because, you know, if you'd been analyzed, you just knew that they were true. And, you know, this, this is, it's arrogant, it's uh, contemptuous of people who are really um, committed to a scientific method. 
uh, and analysts didn't work very hard to maintain connections with universities and talk to people outside their own fishbowls. So I think in some ways what the devaluation of psychoanalysis and some of the misunderstandings of it are the fault of analysts who talked down to people and uh, demeaned research. Um, Aaron Beck went through psychoanalytic training, and when he was graduating, um, they gave him trouble because he wanted to do research rather than necessarily only practice. They told him that you know, he hadn't identified adequately as an analyst, and, and so they dug their own grave there by demeaning research. Having said that, I would say that there are uh, many more empirical studies relevant to psychoanalytic treatment. Um, If you include studies on personality, uh, defense, um, development and developmental phases, um, relationship, neuroscience, affect, we have bodies of research in all of those areas that have implications for psychotherapy. What the psychoanalytic tradition doesn't have too much of is randomized controlled trials of specific technical approaches to specific symptomatic problems. Although we have been building a research on those areas once it became clear that we weren't going to stay at the mental health table if we didn't do some of that kind of work. But I I think there is um, an extensive empirical literature that supports psychoanalytic ideas, certainly as well as it supports the ideas of any other theoretical orientation. Mm. But it's true. CBT from the beginning, you know, emphasized, you know, we base ourselves on science, not, you know, idealization of your mentor. Mm -hmm. If we see psychoanalysis as a a discrete uh, therapy, in comparison to, say, cognitive behavioral therapy, which has very explicit structures within the uh, within the theories, such as a core belief or automatic thoughts, is it the fact that the latent variables within psychoanalysis are so uh, intertwined with one another that it's very difficult to establish an empirical uh, process for researching and assessing those processes? Well, you can do it, but it takes a long time. I mean, you're looking at theory that's complex, about complex phenomena. There was a recent study by Chris Perry and Chris Fowler of um, people treated for serious personality disorders at the Austin Riggs Center in Massachusetts. And after two years, they found significant personality change on a whole range of areas, and they were continuing to get better. But that research took immense amounts of resources with real people who are sometimes somewhat difficult people compared to how relatively easy it is to do a short-term study of whether your anxiety is lower after 20 sessions of CBT. One of the things that has always characterized psychoanalysis is that um, symptom reduction is only part of what we're after. We're hoping to help people improve their lives and feel more self-constancy, more sense of agency, more capacity to reflect on themselves, to understand the separate subjectivities of other people, to tolerate a range of affects and regulate them, and to have realistic and reliable self-esteem, and to be able to grieve and move on from stuff that can't be changed, to, to feel vitality, um, to love, to work, to play. Uh, those are more important to us than whether a person is temporarily more or less anxious or more or less sad. Mm -hmm. So it's much harder to measure that kind of stuff than it is easily measurable symptoms. Mm. I sense what you're contending there is that a lot of the research in other modalities looks at more transient-based distress as opposed to long-standing, enduring difficulties that are entrenched in a person's life. Yes, and yet... Therapists of all theoretical orientations will tell you that more than 50% of their patients 
have problems that do involve some issues of personality or longstanding issues of trauma or maybe a longstanding addiction or a stress that won't go away. It's rare to have someone come for a simple symptom, not comorbid with anything else. If there were three primary features of psychoanalysis that you could embed into your clinical practice, what would they be? One would be an attitude of not knowing, a kind of curiosity, um, a readiness to be surprised, um, rather than I'm an expert, I know, I know what should work here and I'm going to apply it. Uh, a kind of um, attitude of curiosity that is humble it would be the first thing. Mm. Um, compassion would certainly be the next thing. Uh, one of the things I've always loved about the psychoanalytic tradition is it assumes that we all have everything. You know, that anything that you can find in a patient is something that, that's potentially there in you as well. I mean, that we all have sadism, that we all have narcissism, that we, we all envy, we all, we all use primitive defenses at times. Um, that kind of compassion for the human condition would be the second thing. Um, and I guess, I mean, I'm just making this up because you asked me for three. I guess the third thing would be some emphasis on um, the patient's capacity for agency that um, I, I've always felt that psychoanalysis was compatible with the ancient idea that um, the more y- you know yourself, the more you're free. Um, that, that self-knowledge leads to the capacity to make choices as opposed to um, making driven choices of the same kind throughout your life. Mm-hmm. That the more you understand, the more range you have, the uh, the more agency you have. And so the, the psychoanalytic disposition not to tell people what to do, but instead to try to help them find what they want to do and what they think is the right thing to do would probably be the third element. Mm. Applying that to Vygotsky's zone of proximal development, I, I sense that's almost making a, a clear-cut assumption that everybody has their own emotional zone of proximal development and we need to establish where that is and respect that and help that grow. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think therapy is a developmental process. People get off the track and we try to help them get back on and find their own strengths. Yeah. Um, and they have to teach us where they are. Yeah. In your book, Psychoanalytic Diagnosis, you write of types of character organisation. At a conceptual level, what are the key elements of a personality structure? Uh, there are several interacting things. One is temperament. We're all born with, with different temperaments on a number of um, criteria. You know, how, how much you move toward people as a... As a opposed to feeling overstimulated and pulling away from people, how easily soothable you are, how much natural aggression you have, um, how uh, excitable you are. There are a lot of temperamental differences that go into personality. Um, Certainly, you get structured by identification with the people that are your earliest caregivers. Um, you tend to develop coping strategies and defenses that are completely appropriate to your situation as a child, but maybe maladaptive later on. Mm-hmm. You also develop cognitions that become very structuring, um, cognitive schemas, if you will, uh, based on what your experience is. And then you apply those sometimes to situations later where they they don't really fit. 
Um, also, it affects your personality. Uh, what kinds of um, how, how you were oriented uh, morally, ethically, what your culture defined as good behavior versus not so good behavior. Uh, for example, in Eastern cultures, putting the, the family and the community first is um, valid, valued. In Western cultures, we're very individualistic. We tend to pathologize people and think of them as a little bit too self-defeating or self-sacrificing if they give up their own um, interest in favor of other people. So cultures shape us, and our religious background shapes us. Uh, we're also shaped by um, accidents. Of um, Are we a twin? Are, are we an adoptee? Uh, did we have a traumatic experience that bathed our brain in glucocorticoids at a certain point and uh, created certain kinds of brain channels that otherwise wouldn't have been there? Um, so people differ based on their temperament, based on what maturational issues they're dealing with, based on their defenses, based on their affect pattern. We all have a different affect fractal, if you will. Uh, we go through different affects. They, some people are big on uh, sadness and can't find their anger, and some people are angry a lot of the time and are defended against their sadness and their vulnerability. And that's, those are different kinds of personal solutions. Yeah. Um, yeah. You're listening to Clinically Thinking. And now a word from our sponsor. If you're an Australian clinical psychologist, the APS College of Clinical Psychologists is here to support you and help grow your skills. The college is the biggest group representing ClinPsychs in the country and is active in influencing health policy at both state and federal levels. Members enjoy cheaper or free access to a wealth of CPD opportunities, including webinars, seminars, conferences, training, and online peer supervision groups as well as the opportunity to network and collaborate with the most experienced ClinSykes in Australia. Join us. Together, our voice is stronger, and we can help bring about better mental health outcomes for all Australians. To find out more about the college, visit the APS website or click the link on the Clinically Thinking Facebook page. And now, back to the show. How can we then use psychoanalytic therapy to formulate and treat people who exhibit challenging behaviour or have a personality disorder? Well, we first have to try to understand them. Um, and uh, that's not an easy task. There are, there are different approaches to this. Uh, I'm personally fond of Kernberg's structured interview for personality organization, the STIPO, um, where he uh, looks at things like um, how the person describes self and other, you know, are they nuanced or is it a matter of all good, all bad? Um, uh, are they using more primitive defenses or more mature defenses? Primitive defenses being things like denial, withdrawal, splitting, projective identification, primitive forms of idealization and devaluation, omnipotent control, um, primitive forms of dissociation, acting out, somatization, uh, and, and more mature forms of defense being things like repression, rationalization, intellectualization, and up at the high end, humor, sublimation, identification. So he, he looks at where you are on, on, on that spectrum mm -hmm. and where, what is your relationship to reality? Um, a, a very oversimplified version of how he understands um, 
whether people are more in the healthy range, the neurotic range, the borderline range, or the psychotic range has to do with um, how much they're able to um, acknowledge consensual notions of reality. And sometimes you don't know when you're, especially when a person is seeking help and they're in some kind of crisis, they can look psychotic, but if you ask them certain kinds of questions, you hear that this is a temporary regressive state as opposed to they have a schizophrenic disorder or a psychotic depressive disorder, bipolar disorder. Mm. Um, I, I mean, I, I can get it too much in the weeds when you ask me these questions, but basically we, we interview people and we get certain data from them. What we're listening for is what is the story? Um, how do they defend against painful affect? How do they relate to us? And a big part of feeling out people's personality structure is noticing your own countertransference. Uh, what do they evoke in you affectively? Um, do you feel when you talk to them like the two of you are agreeing to look at a particular conflict in the person? Or do you feel that the patient's in a state of readiness to believe you're about to criticize them? Or is the patient idealizing you instead of feeling sort of collaborative with a real human being? Mm -hmm. um, or for that matter, does the patient say, I know you're the devil because I can see your horns and your tail. I mean, sometimes the diagnosis isn't too difficult to make. Yeah. But, um, but a lot of it comes through the affective realm. Mm -hmm. Through a lot of these um, types of experiences that can come up in clinical practice, it's based on what the client says and how they're relating to the therapist. If we switch that for a moment, say when you have an anxious client or even a supervisee for that matter, who remains silent in session or offers limited dialogue in the therapeutic exchange, despite perhaps agreeing with shared formulations and understandings, but they wish to preserve that silence. How would a psychoanalytic therapist conceptualize the function of silence? It would vary from one person to another. I mean, people communicate not just verbally, they communicate by facial affect, by body language, um, by evoking affect in these sort of subtle right brain to right brain ways. Mm -hmm. Silence uh, in one patient might be hostility. In another patient, it might be just uh, a need to have space for a bit. Uh, it, it might be a need to process something. Um, it, it might be confusion. It might be that they're hearing voices that are distracting them and they've got to listen to those and they can't listen to you. Mm. You know, if you've got a silent patient, the best you can do, I think, if you're any kind of therapist, but what I would have been trained to do as an analyst is to say something like, I'm not sure how to understand your silence. Um, do you want me to try to draw you out or... Or would you prefer that I just respect your silence and wait till you want to say something to me and see what their body language and their verbal expression, if they're willing to talk, um, is telling me about that? I, I, I often ask the patient for supervision in a certain kind of way and say, you know, as your therapist, I find myself confused about what's helpful to you when you fall into these silences. I'm not sure whether to ask you questions, but I don't want to make you feel like you're being interrogated, mm. um, or whether to just wait, but then I <laughs> worry that you'll feel like um, just nowhere and um, negligent. How, do you, how should we try to navigate the fact that in, in certain moments you seem really not to be able to or interested in or whatever but but you don't talk mm -hmm. okay thank you as a fan of your book psychoanalytic diagnosis i've implemented your intake framework so gathering information about a person's uh you know 
experiences across the lifespan. What are some clinical observations or questions that can illuminate a person's personality structure that you find particularly helpful? Um, I ask them about their first memory. There's kind of some, there's lore in the psychoanalytic tradition that the first memory often contains uh, sort of the core of the person's um, central concerns. Um, I ask them if they have any repetitive dreams because repetitive dreams will show something about the personality. I'll ask them what stories there were about them as kids. Uh, and I'll ask them how they would describe themselves. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What kind of a person would you say you are? What are your strengths and weaknesses? Um, how, how would you describe yourself to me, a complete stranger? Mm-hmm. Uh, my friend Deborah Lupnitz always asks them about their name, and I've started doing that too. It's a Lacanian idea that there's a story about the person's name. And uh, you know what? The, how the parents uh, arrived at it—that will tell you a lot about the family dynamics and the expectations that were on the child. Mm-hmm. Sometimes that's an interesting piece of information too. I found the story behind a person's name or family jokes and stories about them can really uncover some particularly interesting and otherwise unexpected um, information about their home life growing up. Um, Recalling my clinical training, there was a large focus on explicit learning of therapy skills, such as developing emotion regulation with breathing exercises or various DBT-style strategies. Though I've found in my own practice that it's often the implicit, relational-based experiential learning that clients experience more enduring change. And again, very difficult to measure and quantify, but the use of things like projection, transference, and counter-transference, as you've mentioned, come to mind. How does psychoanalysis use implicit learning in therapy? I don't think we focus on it, but I think it happens in the relationship. Mm -hmm. Um, It's not that I never use techniques like um, breathing or helping people feel their feet on the ground or other ways of, you know, um, calling people's attention to what's going on. But, um, you know, one of the things that's fascinated me all throughout my career is that I always ask people at the end of a therapy, you know, how are you feeling about our, what we did together? What are you happy about? What are you disappointed about? Um, And their comments about what they got never match what I thought I was doing, you know? Mm -hmm. I mean, they'll they'll say something like, well, you know, when, when when it was too hot and I complained and you went over and uh, turned down the air conditioner, I suddenly realized, wow, you don't have to just complain about a problem. You can solve a problem. <laughs> you know, it, it, it can be something as simple as that. Mm-hmm. Uh, or I, I, there was one psychopathic patient at the end of treatment. I, I said, and, and he, he was kind of, I don't usually work with people who are as antisocial as he, he was in terms of his personality. But um, at the end, but he was, you know, in his 50s, he was trying to, he, he found God in AA after developing a substance use disorder. And he was curious about how other people seem to live their life according to these rules. And he was trying to learn how to do that. Hmm. So he came to therapy. Um, and it was a fascinating therapy. At the end of it, I said, uh, how do you evaluate our work? He said, oh, it was great. I, you know, I learned a lot. I said, well, like what? And he said, well, for example... Um, I sat across from a woman I was attracted to for a year and a half, and I didn't put the moves on you. <laughs> and, <laughs> and my first reaction was, oh, my careful interpretations, and that's what you remember. But then I realized, for him, that was a huge achievement. He was saying to me, I always approach people manipulatively. Mm-hmm. With you, I was experimenting 
with not trying to use you mm, mm. with some other kind of relationship. And, and I was able to do it. So I realized for him, that was the critical thing. Not any of the particular skills or, you know, areas yeah. of interpretation. So you, you never know. You're always surprised by what people make of your presence in their life. Mm-hmm. And regardless of the impact that that may have, it's often, as you say, very different to what we anticipate the impact will be. And it's re-scripting those relational experiences that have been so entrenched from often early trauma. Yeah. In the same vein, then, of implicit learning, the experiential and relational elements of clinical supervision can be far-reaching and incredibly powerful. In reflecting yeah. in my own experience, I can find myself replicating relational experiences therapeutically with clients when I've been introduced to such relational patterns in clinical supervision. How does psychoanalysis inform clinical supervision? I think most psychoanalysts view um, clinical supervision as the opportunity to help another person uh, become the best therapist they can be. It's not as prescriptive as skills training, although certainly that's part of it. Mm-hmm. But a lot of it is trying to expand people's capacity to to mentalize all kinds of different ways of being human beings. And I usually find myself with supervisees um, teaching them about, oh, I think this patient is um, probably, I'll just pick something out of the air, uh, probably has a dissociative disorder that um, it feels like she's been hiding from the world and partly from herself. And I'm basing it on this, 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 and this. And the beginning supervisees tend to think it's magic when it turns out that that comes true, that the patients then not too much later start saying, by the way, I'm more than one person and, uh, and so on. Mm. But it's just from experience. And so, I, I think we're trying to help um, people who are younger in the field to build on what they already know how to do. They, they, therapists tend to be caring people. Um, they want to help others. That's like three quarters of the way to being a good therapist. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, so it's a kind of a facilitative role. The, the only exceptions to that is it, it, in the, very seldom in my career, maybe two or three times, I've had a supervisee that I thought just didn't get it, did not really like people, didn't understand people, or um, was so narcissistic they were showing off for all their patients rather than trying to learn about their patient. Mm-hmm. That's really hell when that's true because Mm. you have to give people honest feedback that you know i i'm not seeing the evidence that you have the temperament to do this kind of work Mm -hmm. and then you have to confront them with evidence that you know what they are doing with their patient doesn't seem to be helping their patient that that's torture so it's not always a matter of liberating the good therapist and everybody, but usually it is. And it's a different model from skill building, you know? Yes, yeah, absolutely. You've written a book that's published this year called Psychoanalytic Supervision. Can you tell me a little bit about this text and how you see psychoanalysis playing a role in the supervision of clinical psychologists? I wanted to, um, I was seeing there was more and more pressure on training programs to have courses in supervision. And they were mostly framed in terms of gradual skills training. And I wanted to um, complement that with a more developmental um, vision of supervision. I have supervised now for 
50 years and in all different kinds of cultures and for people with all different kinds of clinical challenges. So I thought, you know, I was in a position now to speak as an experienced analytic person about what I'd learned about it. One of the things that impelled me was everybody that I talked to about how I was going to do a book on supervision would start talking about their own supervisors as if they were quite alive in, in their internal world. Um, sometimes as, uh, as people, they kept drawing on, you know, what would Stanley have done in this situation? That kind of thing. Or what would Marion have told me? Sometimes they had horror stories. And the horror stories were always the know-it-all supervisor who tells the supervisee to do something that the supervisee intuitively knows is the wrong thing to do. And they insist they do it anyway. And the, the supervisee, because they are in an inferior power position, has no choice but to do what the supervisor asks and then loses the patient. And you know, they, they, I, I talked to people who were still feeling guilty 50 years later because they'd done something that went against what they knew to be true. I, I had a supervisor way back who wanted me to write a letter to a patient telling her that she was manipulative. Um, and it would have devastated her. And why a letter? I couldn't, I couldn't understand this. And, and that has stayed with me for almost 50 years. So supervision is, we come to it originally at a critically vulnerable time in our life when we're faced with being an apprentice in a role that we can't easily watch people practice this art. Um, so we feel like we're called upon to do something we don't have a lot of pre-existing images of, and we feel often very skinless and um, transparent, and like everybody's going to see everything wrong with us. So it, it's such a tender place to be when you're learning to do psychotherapy, and I think there's sometimes a mismatch between supervisors and supervisees where the supervisor feels, I've got to be giving you something. I've got to be teaching you something. And what the supervisee needs is, just tell me I didn't screw up. <laughs> just, just make me feel like I have a right to be in the chair that I'm sitting in with the patient. Um, so I wanted to write about stuff like that. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's amazing how powerful those dynamics can be within a supervision relationship uh, in that it can then be replicated uh, back into the, the therapist client uh, when the therapist was the yes. supervisee. Yeah. Just before we uh, finish up for today's podcast, you've got the clinical conference keynote uh, speech coming up in May, as we mentioned a little bit earlier. What can we look forward to hearing more about? Um. What you wanted me to talk about, which was fine with me, was um, because the conference is uh, talking about evolution and innovation. Uh, to talk about evolution and innovation in the treatment of severe personality disorders. So I'm going to try to be not simply psychoanalytic, but to talk about across orientations about ways of approaching people with significant personality pathology. And so I'll be talking about a more dimensional way of thinking about people than we get from the DSM or the ICD. Um, I'll be talking about types of personality that um, require us to deviate from what, what we may have been taught as standard approaches uh, to helping people. And this, again, applies more to... Analysts deviate from standard images of analysis to help certain kinds of patients, and CBT people deviate from certain images of C that they've been taught to help certain kinds of people. So I'm going to focus on 
the kinds of patients for whom most of us weren't really prepared when we graduated from graduate school. I'm not sure which categories I'm going to be talking about. Probably narcissistic will be one. Um, Maybe masochistic or self-defeating because it's not in the DSM. Mm -hmm. Um, Maybe schizoid. I'm not sure, but I'm I'm starting to put together the talk. And uh, I'm going to put the emphasis on across orientations, what do people agree on is important. I'm sick of these horse race studies where you assign this group to CBT bunch and this group to uh, interpersonal bunch and this group to another, and you see who wins. That's not a therapist mentality. A therapist mentality is I will take ideas from anywhere if it helps me with a patient. Therapists are integrative, and I'm interested in what have Marsha Linehan and Otto Kernberg and Russell Mears, what, what have they found in common in their many years of work with people diagnosed as borderline or personality disorder? So I'm going to put the emphasis on what we can learn that's, um, that seems to be a universal uh, piece of wisdom. That sounds enormously, enormously fascinating, and I cannot wait to hear the keynote speech on personality disorders at the upcoming APS Clinical Conference in May. Professor Nancy McWilliams, it's been a privilege to speak with you on Clinically Thinking. Thank you indeed for joining us. Thank you very much. And thank you for listening to our Clinically Thinking podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode on psychoanalysis. I'm Matt Cartwright, and this is Clinically Thinking, proudly produced by the College of Clinical Psychologists.